Listener Production. A warning. This episode touches on topics involving violence against women and sexual assault. So please listen with care. The number for 1800 Respect is 1800 737732. And the number for Lifeline is 131114. Welcome back to Crime Insiders Forensics. This week, another in-depth conversation about the intriguing world of forensic science. For those joining us for the first time, my name's Catherine Fox. I'm a former GP, crime author and screenwriter. Now, if you're listening to this podcast, you're also fascinated by conversations from within the world of forensics and gaining an understanding of how science is helping to solve crime. This one was clearly a homicide from the start and at the stage I was there, the offender was unknown. So there was a lot of parallel work going on by the homicide squad to try and ascertain who may have done this. On this week's episode of Crime Insiders Forensics, a truly incredible scientist and person, Dr Joanna Glengarry. I spoke to her about two particular cases she worked on which shook Melbourne and Australia to its core. The murders of Eurydice Dixon in 2018 and Aya Masawi a few months later. These cases were particularly intense for Joe, as you'll hear. Although both of the men who were convicted confessed, the work she undertook and the results of her forensic expertise made a valuable contribution to their convictions. Again, I mentioned this at the start of the episode, but this is a confronting conversation, so please take care when listening. As a forensic pathologist, I think your job's incredibly difficult to start with, and you've had an interesting career, but we might start by talking about a couple of the most prominent cases that you have had to deal with professionally the cases of Eurydice Dixon and Aya Masawi. Now, for those who don't know, there were two women who were walking home at night and were attacked, assaulted and murdered by random people they did not know, they did not have intimate relationships with. And they attracted a lot of media attention and a lot of anger in the community. The Eurydice Dixon murder happened first Can you remember what you were doing when you got that call? I think I'd just turned up to work. It was fairly early in the day and fairly early on the on-call week. So I was just making a cup of coffee, having a normal morning, and the phone rings. And you know that when the phone rings when you're on call, it can be something that's going to change the course of the day or the week, Um, or it might be something relatively straightforward. Um, In this case, it was clearly something that very much changed the course of the day. So what was your response? Who requested your presence and how did you respond? Well, primarily be contacted by one of the members of the Victoria Police Homicide Squad and they will give us a rough briefing of what they know so far, what the circumstances are and what they expect from us at that stage. Sometimes it's just a 
prior warning that there, there's been a homicide and we'll need to do something about it at some stage and it's just giving a, an early heads up. But in a number of cases, it's a matter of asking us to come out to the crime scene to assist them at that early stage. We don't go to every crime scene, uh, every homicide crime scene, but if we're asked, we will always go out. Um, and so I made a time to meet them at the scene and jumped into our on-call car to head out there. And what are you taking with you and what are you wearing in anticipation of actually going to that scene? So it's certainly not CSI. We're not running around in mini skirts and stiletto heels. It's very boring, practical trousers that you can bend over in because there's nothing worse than wearing tight trousers and realising you'd love to bend over and examine someone, but you actually can't. Um, so it's comfortable trousers, flat shoes, um, breathable T-shirts because crime scenes are always hot and sweaty and the, the Tyvek suits, which are those blue or white full body suits you put on when you get to the scene, they don't breathe. They're hot and sweaty. So for me, it's all about comfort. I made the mistake once of going to a crime scene in a skirt and unfortunately it was time when TV cameras were there and I showed up on the, the news that evening it's really not a great look, someone sort of tottering around in a skirt at a crime scene. So I'm very practical. Um, so then we, are, we have an on-call car. Uh, we're probably one of the few people who can legally say, I've got a homicide truck. Normal people say that, then they get arrested. But uh, we do have a homicide truck and it's filled with all of the goodies that we might need. I've heard and read that you actually add things to your toolbox that not everybody may carry. So what do you add to your, what is in your toolbox to start with? What do you add and why? Well, I have a little little mini bag and it's been alluded to in the past, I think, that I have, have Bunnings tree loppers, but th those are definitely limited to being at work. We don't, wouldn't take those out. But uh, my tool bag is built up over time of things that I've needed to have at scenes but didn't and then subsequently added in. So Poor police officers standing out in the sun usually forget sun cream, so I have sun cream. And I have been known to have to apply sun cream to the uniform officers standing guard at the scene. Wet wipes, tissues, lollies, all the practical girl stuff that a girl would have in her handbag, I've added into my scene bag. We have all the gloves and all of the swabs as well, but there's definitely a whole cornucopia of practical girl stuff in there for those times at the scene because if you haven't got wet wipes you know that's the time that you'll absolutely need them. What would you use wet wipes on? Crime scenes are not always the most tidy of places and various bodily fluids can sometimes get smeared on places you, you don't want them to. Anything touching your skin even if you're wearing gloves if there's anything that'll splash it'll go right outside the the boundary of the glove so it's uh, always good to have something just to wipe off any spurts or splashes off the skin. Was that what you began your career carrying with you to crime scenes or were they things that you added as you went? Definitely something I've added as I've gone along. I remember a New Year's Day crime scene where the poor policeman was, he was a, a pale skin, red-haired guy and he was out in the middle of the sun and he was turning red and he had no sun cream. So we'd gone to the local pharmacy, bought some sun cream, so that stayed in the kit. Uh, I had a case of a young woman who'd passed away after her birthday party and unfortunately she hadn't been discovered for a week and had begun to decompose. So everything was very 
liquid at the scene and one of the detectives who was helping me examine the body got some splash of some fluid on his face, so hence the need for wet wipes. Crime scenes can take a long time and often be a long way from food, hence the the sugary snacks just to keep the blood sugar up. So it's all of the things that I've learned by not having them at scenes that have uh, meant that it's now pretty well stocked. And a headlamp, always a headlamp, because scenes are always dark and poorly lit. And when did you find the need for a tree lopper? <laughs> That's one of our one of our standard uh, pieces of equipment we have in the mortuary for being able to access the chest cavity through the ribs. Surgeons can certainly have high-powered, expensive drills and things, and we go to Bunnings and use tree loppers. They do the job, they're efficient, and uh, saves the taxpayer money. Whereas the television shows always show a striker saw. Yeah, that would be overkill. In terms of the case we just mentioned, the Eurydice Dixon case, so you got the call, you went to the scene... Who else was at that scene when you arrived? The scene was pretty well established by the time I arrived. Uh, the homicide squad were there with the appropriate support to maintain the security of the scene. Um, I remember there was a, a sort of a mobile office that had already been set up. So it was clear from the beginning uh, this was going to be something fairly high level and important. And... I went in there to, to receive the briefing on what the police knew so far or what they needed to convey to me for me to do my job. When you say important, what do you mean? Scenes will vary from initially being unclear whether they're suspicious or not. And for those ones, it may be just a small number of people there, the initial responding officers, a detective or two, and they're really waiting for any guidance that we can give from a, a medical point of view as to whether the scene needs to be escalated to a full homicide, which is clearly expensive and resource intensive, or whether we can wait, just hold the scene and, and see if we can figure out a little more what's going on. And if it doesn't turn out to be suspicious, then it doesn't need the full homicide squad. This one was clearly a homicide from the start, and at the stage I was there, the offender was unknown. So there was a lot of parallel work going on by the homicide squad to try and ascertain who may have done this. For me, it was to ascertain what had happened to provide them some early guidance around what they may need to be looking for, who they may need to be looking for, really just to get some idea of, of what was going on at a very early stage while the offender was unknown. Did you have a forensic photographer at the scene working with you as well? Yeah, the Victoria Police have um, photographers. They will be at the scene um, and we work with them. So we generally won't go in and disturb anything until the scene's been photographed, until they are happy they've documented everything as it is before we go in and start moving things. And really it's a matter of if we're moving things, changing things, altering things, we just photograph it as we go. If in doubt, we'll take a photograph to document that whole process. What sort of information will the police give you at that particular stage? Look, it's really only a general idea of what's gone on and, and often there's not a lot known at that point. Sometimes it's easier for us to approach it with an open mind. I mean, clearly we know something bad has happened 
but it's quite nice for us to be able to go in almost a little bit blinded about the circumstances so that we're not leading or not led in one direction at the expense of thinking about everything. And I think most of us would prefer to approach a scene in a, in a general way, see if we can figure out what the pathology tells us. Because the information's more powerful. If I say it's a stab wound and it looks like a serrated knife, and then I'm told afterwards, by the way, we've recovered a serrated knife from the scene, then that's much more powerful correlation of those injuries that I've been able to say that based on the injury in an unbiased way rather than going and knowing it was a serrated knife. You'd never know if you were just seeing it because you thought it was there. So I think we're all aware of the element of bias um, and are quite open to to the challenge of making a decision without knowing the information beforehand. What priorities do you have right then and there at the scene? It's multifactorial. The scene assists both the police and me. So the priorities for me are figuring out exactly what I'm dealing with. What's the scene? What am I going to need to do over the coming hours and days to elucidate what's happened to this person? While we we do have a relatively uniform process in terms of death investigation, for some certain types of deaths, we might put more importance on certain parts of the examination, certain extra tests we do. For example, if we're thinking about someone who may have been strangled, clearly we're going to be taking a much closer look at the structures of the neck than someone who's been stabbed in the leg. So while we do look at everything as part of the examination, getting an idea of what we're dealing with will help me plan what I need to do. Um what I need to start organising at the mortuary. It's also putting the whole death in context. The next priority is clearly informing the police. So I'm looking at the scene of what can I tell them from this? Confirming the person is in fact dead, looking to say, did they die here or did they die somewhere else? What are the injuries are present? Can I tell them anything about those injuries, that the types of weapons or mechanisms that might have been involved? We certainly stay away from time of death. Um, it's one of the things that TV shows with a huge degree of accuracy, yet in real life there's very little accuracy that, that we can give beyond what they probably already know. And I think the more research that goes into it, the more we realise that we really know less and less about it. So it's really about the priorities are information, me giving information and me also taking in that information and planning and obviously the state that the body is left in will give you other clues. For example, if clothing is missing or absent or rearranged, how do you then prioritise if you're concerned about sexual assault or other kind of, kinds of injuries that may not necessarily be fatal but were involved in the attack? We really closely liaise with the crime scene officers with that. For example, in Eurydice's case, it was apparent that possible sexual assault was uh, was something we needed to be thinking of. And you really need to weigh up, do I take the required samples here at the scene? The pros are that the samples will be got in a timely manner, they can be tested earlier, there's less risk of any trace evidence being lost in transport to the mortuary. However, in this case, it was in the middle of an open reserve, 
Scenes are often crowded, poorly lit. They're not as sterile as our mortuary or theatre is versus taking those samples at the autopsy where it's a controlled environment. I've got a technician to assist me and we can get better samples, I think, in that setting. But there's the risk of delay or of trace evidence possibly being lost on the way. So we'll liaise with the crime scene officers about what samples we need to take at the scene and what samples we can take at the autopsy in terms of sexual assault. And by samples, I mean swabs looking for DNA of the offender. And in this case, it was clear that we needed to take those swabs as a matter of urgency, given the offender was unknown. But rather than electing to do that at the scene, whereas I've said it's a less controlled environment, the samples are probably not as good quality as the ones we would take back at the institute in the uh, mortuary theatre, So we elected to perform the autopsy in as a timely manner as we could to get those samples with priority. So you take notes, you've got photographs there for the scene. How long, for example, did you spend at that scene? Uh, I think I probably spent around an hour at the scene. Were there media there at the time as well? I believe there were, yes. Um, I normally try and blank out the presence of media at scenes and just pretend I'm in my own little bubble and they're not there. And other than choosing a place that I can stand where they can't film me, uh, which is very high on the priority list, um, yeah, I try and stay clear of the media at scenes. Does that increase the pressure on you if the media are involved and the police at the scene as well, that you know that this is obviously going to be a covered case, media coverage involved and scrutiny Uh, Yes and no. It puts pressure on the scene to make sure I'm presenting professionally. There's nothing worse than turning up, seeing one of the crime scene or police officers that you might know well or or be friendly with and giving a big smile and saying, hi, Bob, how are you? And a big smile because you know that you giving that big smile will be what's featured on the news that evening. And to me, it, it never looks great to have people grinning and smiling at a scene where something clearly devastating has happened. But in terms of pressure, I think I put pressure on myself at every scene to do the best job that you can, uh, regardless of whether the media are there, because often what you see in the media doesn't really reflect what's going on or doesn't reflect the severity or the importance of the case. So I think it's just important to put a little bit of pressure on yourself for everything to make sure you're doing the best job. Well, I suppose that um, with internet and sleuths and podcasters and and everybody now obsessed with crime, that any case can possibly be scrutinised to the nth degree. So in that sense, is there any more pressure than there used to be on crime cases that you're involved with? Look, quite possibly. Um, You always do wonder if one of your cases will turn up on some current affairs expose where everyone, where those people meet in a committee and and look through the photos and look very serious as they discuss things and you wonder what they're going, would potentially say. But the reality is all of our cases are scrutinised. Every homicide case we do gets scrutinised by one of our colleagues before it gets signed out. And certainly there's no hiding anything from any of your colleagues, Uh, but you want that level of honesty. That's what, what keeps you honest. And the courts have normally scrutinised it, be it the prosecution, be it the defence or the jury. They'll give you all the scrutiny under the sun before it even gets to that stage. 
but look, I think months, years down the fact, the idea that uh, someone can come along and do a, a podcast or a, a TV show about it, it might cross your mind in passing, but by and large, I think if you're doing a good job, then you have to just back yourself that even if it comes under that scrutiny, you should be all right. So you've just completed your work at the crime scene. What then happens to the remains and what do you then go and do straight away after? So normally by that stage I've left. Um, The crime scene officer's examination will normally continue, um, often for some time after that. As I leave, I will have made arrangements with the homicide squad pending the required coronial approval to perform an autopsy. Now, in some cases, we'll try and do it that same day, as in the case of of Eurydice. Other cases, we can do it first thing the following morning, when everyone's had a good night's sleep and a a hearty breakfast. When I leave the scene, normally at that stage, the funeral director is called, and they come in order to remove the deceased from the scene and transport them to the Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine, where they're admitted uh, for my examination later on. Is any of that monitored by police in terms of chain of evidence? Does someone accompany the funeral directors? What happens there? In the past, there would be a police officer who would accompany the body to maintain that continuity of chain of evidence. Now we have seals where the body bag is sealed. Um, That is photographed at the scene and documented that seal 1234 is placed on the bag at a certain time. And then that bag is not opened until I am there and I authorise the seal to be opened. So we check that the number is the same, that it's still seal 1234 and we document when that's opened. So that's how we maintain that level of security. We also have secure refrigerators where cases of of suspicious deaths or homicides are stored separate from our main body storage area. So again, swipe card access is required. So there's a chain of everyone who's accessed that body with that swipe card. So it is a very secure process the entire time to try and minimise contamination and cross-contamination and interference. Absolutely. So once you're set up for the post-mortem, are the police viewing the post-mortem as well at the same time? They are. So there'll be myself and my technicians and there'll be a photographer from the police forensic sciences team in the room with me, and the homicide squad detective or detectives will be in a, a viewing room communicated with internal microphones, directly viewing the autopsy as well. And in terms of time taken during the autopsy, what sort of time is involved? Very much depends on the type of case. It takes longer than a what we'd call a routine autopsy. So a routine autopsy would be a, a sudden death in the community where we're really just trying to ascertain the cause of death. There's nothing suspicious or complicated about it. That might take half an hour, for example, whereas a homicide autopsy could take three hours. It could take 13 hours. It really depends on the complexity, the type of examinations you're required to perform, and often the number of injuries. 
If you have one stab wound, that doesn't take a long time to document and photograph and describe. If you have 100 stab wounds, that's going to take a lot longer to describe, document, photograph, um, and, and make sure you've got everything. So it really depends on how many injuries are present. And then when you're doing your investigation, uh, again, one stab wound is going to be much easier to determine the wound track to see what organs are injured, what tissues are injured, how what direction it goes, how deep it goes, versus 100 stab wounds where you've got 100 different wound tracks to figure out where they go, how deep they go, what they've injured. Um, so it really depends on the type of case. How did that particular case affect you? Understandably, you are going to be seeing victims of domestic violence. In Australia, a woman dies every week on average through intimate partner violence. Did that case, because of the random nature and the fact that it was a young woman walking home at night, did that have any different effect on you? It did. And I think you hit the nail on the head with the random nature of it. That really is quite sobering because you think, that could be me, that could be anyone, that could be someone I know. Um, And it's not to downplay those cases where the victim and the offender are known to each other or there's sometimes adverse social circumstances that have led to a crime being committed. But there's something about the sheer randomness of it, I think, that really hits at your core being as a member of the community. And it's part of our job is remembering that we are there we are the doctor for the deceased. But some cases you can't put aside the fact that you're also a human. I'm also a member of the the Melbourne community and it affects that part of you, that the, the human part of you, not the forensic pathologist part of you, um, that something like that could happen. Um, so I remember coming back to my office after completing my examination and just sitting and thinking, that was pretty hard. Um, But it's also added to by the knowledge of what happened. Having looked at those injuries and examined those injuries in detail, it certainly compounds things because you're in a unique position to know more than many people will about what's happened to that person in their last moments. And I do remember sitting in my office and it was late at night because we'd started in the evening and and finished quite late. And it's that that time in the office where there's no one else there. Um, I don't mind it. It's nice and quiet. I can put some music on and listen and it's all very peaceful. I can just sit in my office, write my notes, dictate my findings. But I remember sitting there and thinking, that's incredibly sad and tragic and that that's going to impact a lot of people. Do you think it's more difficult for you to accept or understand when it's a random act of violence? Maybe I've become cynical with time, but there's very little now that people do that surprises me. Um, We live in a very, very diverse society, and uh, while it might sadden me that someone has done something, I don't think there's a lot that surprises me anymore. But is there any part of you that needs to try and understand perhaps a little bit why you've had to examine this person in this condition? I think I actively try not to because if I start going down that rabbit hole, it's opening up a can of worms that I'm, I'd rather not have to deal with. The job is, is tricky enough already 
without trying to understand why some people do things that are incomprehensible to me personally. Um, so I think I'd actively try not to for self-preservation, really. Now, the killer in Eurydice's case was caught fairly quickly and I'm not quite sure, I can't remember, did, did he confess or whether the police noticed him on CCTV and, and then located him that way. Did that give you any sense of relief? I'm not going to use the word closure, that's the wrong word completely, but some sense of justice when you heard it, because it was relatively quickly, it was within days, I think. Yeah, the police did an amazing investigative job and I've always said to people, if you commit a crime and the homicide squad come after you, watch out, they're an impressive group of people. For me, for them making an arrest, again, that's where I have two hats. One as a member of society where you think, excellent, someone would be held to account. But I think as a forensic pathologist, many of us have a sense of pride about being staunchly independent in our role. So I try to stay clear of who's been arrested, why they did it, how they arrested them, because that's not part of my role in the case. And it's easier to be independent if you say, look, I, d I don't know if the right person's been arrested. I don't know if this person did it. All I know is, here's the pathology. Here's the injuries. This is what I can say and what I can take from it. And the rest of it, I'll leave to other people to, to ponder on that and to think on that. So again, it's an, an active decision to just stay that little one step removed. And again, that's probably self-preservation as well, to try and not get too deep into the case. Because what we know about particularly traumatic cases, what we know is hard enough to get your head around already um, without compounding it further. On that note, though, is there anything that the confession of the killer can teach you or tell you? For example, people often ask, relatives often ask how long it took for that person to die. It seems to be really important to relatives um, to know how long they suffered or they didn't. How, well, obviously it's very difficult to tell that as a pathologist. You, you can't just say, look, it took this long to die. How important is it if the killer actually confesses? Do you believe them to start with, how long it took them to execute the crime? Or does that actually help you in terms of data, future experience, applying it somewhere else? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And that's when we get to put our, our scientific hat on. And, and from that point of view, reading a confession is a very interesting. I think we all take confessions with a grain of salt because there's probably a tendency to downplay what happened. And certainly I've seen confessions where you read what was said and you think, I don't think that's what happened. <laughs> yes, there are limits on what we can say, but, but we can say some things with a pretty good degree of accuracy and, and some of the confessions just don't match up with that in any, on any planet. But in some cases, there will be people who just genuinely tell the truth. And that can be interesting. That can certainly give interesting insights. There's certainly a risk of bias with all of that. And you wouldn't want to base all of your evidence on confessions. But uh, it can certainly give some insights. And, and there may be odd injuries with odd patterns. And it eventually comes out that it, 
a certain implement was used and you it occurs to you and you think, oh, okay, oh, that's what that was. That's interesting. File that away in the little box in my brain of interesting patent injuries and what can cause them. So yeah, I think it is interesting from that point of view to look at it with your pathologist hat on rather than a why did they do it, getting any information around that. But yeah, learning from it, as long as you have a, a degree of caution or you take some of the information with a pinch of salt, there's a lot you can learn from it. That's incredible to think, <laughs> sadly, that you find out answers to questions from the actual kill themselves. We've often said we would love to be able to have a sit down with the person, just for some cases, to ask, what order did you actually inflict the wounds in? Or how hard did you hit the person? Or what did you use? Clearly you can't do that. But it would just be interesting to know because sometimes there are things that are just baffling and it would be really nice to, to get the answers to that, even though you never will. On that note about the, the weapons used, shortly after that, the Eurydice case, Aya Masawi was a student who was murdered in Melbourne and a similar, tragic similar, walking home one night, random attacker, she had no knowledge of him. It seemed to be opportunistic as well. And you were on call for that case as well. I was. How did that differ from the Eurydice case? I think I was forewarned, having been through it relatively recently, about the level of scrutiny that such a case was, was going to come under in terms of the media and certainly at the scene for that case, there was a, a much heavier media presence than there had been the first time round. Um, I think everyone was primed uh, from what had happened previously. So in terms of the approach, the approach was the same, but that awareness that, without wanting to sound flippant, it was that, oh God, it's happening again. Um, and that awareness that this was really going to affect the community that this had happened twice because these cases are not common. They don't happen often. Certainly getting two in a short period of time in a forensic pathologist's career would be uncommon. But in a way I was, I wasn't pleased. I was, I'm never pleased when someone dies. But I was glad that I'd done it so recently that I knew I could do a really good job because I was at the top of my game from having done it recently. There were different injuries involved in that case and this was another concern as to whether or not the the killer tried to destroy evidence through burning and that wasn't made publicly known but no doubt that makes your job much more difficult and how does that then affect you? You've just come back from this case that did affect you personally and now you're backing up with another one. Yeah, the injuries were certainly highly unpleasant um, in that case and it had come at the nearing the end of a week on call it had been a very very busy week so I was probably a, a little bit fatigued from having had a, an intensive week and again it was late in the day where we'd finished the autopsy I'd gone home and quite often after these cases when you get home you're still quite wired from what's happened and it takes a while to just calm and sit and process what's happened before you can get to sleep. 
And so I hadn't slept very well the night after because there was a lot going through my head of, have I done this? Have I done this? Check, checking the boxes and just ruminating on it. And one of my colleagues the next morning popped his head in the office just to say, how are you going? Um, he knew this was clearly a, an unpleasant case. Um, and he made the mistake that many people do of being nice. And of course, I burst into tears on him, as you do when people are nice. Much easier when people are unpleasant to you. And the poor man, he, he looked a bit shell-shocked of, that wasn't quite the response he was expecting. But I think that was just the culmination of two cases coming together, compounded with fatigue. And I was absolutely mortified and embarrassed at, at bursting into tears in front of one of my colleagues. But then actually I was a little bit reassured because it reminded me that I'm actually still human underneath it all and not just a robot who deals with these in a hard-hearted way and it's all cool, calm and collected that, yeah, we're still human. And that's reassuring because we deal with a lot of death and we deal with it without blinking an eye sometimes. So it's nice to know that we're still human underneath it all. To me, that just shows humanity. I know that I, I used to cry with patients sometimes and you couldn't help it because you're feeling their pain. And when there's so much media attention, so much anger in the community, there were vigils, there were marching, there was there was so much palpable anger. I live in Sydney. You could feel it from Mel, you know, the Melbourne anger was palpable even here. So it crossed states, it crossed the country, the response. So there's absolutely no shame in you being humane and crying. I think that actually is more reassuring for anybody to know that people who are looking after their loved ones post-mortem under terrible circumstances are actually genuinely cared for. We do care. We might be a slightly kooky bunch, us forensic pathologists, but yeah, at the end of the day, we're doctors. We care. We do this and do this work because we care. So you were trained as a surgeon. I just This occurred to me. I was thinking of a story. I went to, there was a talk by Thomas Keneally, the Australian, Australian, Australian award-winning writer, and I met an elderly lady and I helped her up the stairs and sat with her and got her a wine and she started talking about her son and she told me that he was a paediatric anaesthetist and she was terribly proud of him. We worked at the kids' hospital. Then Thomas Keneally arrives and he walks up and says, hey, mum, are you okay? Oh, wonderful. And that was his mother. And she was more proud She was more <laughs> proud telling me about her anaesthetist son. So the question I had, given that you trained as a surgeon, do your family tell people what you do or are they more proud of you being a surgeon doctor or do they say you're a doctor or do they say, oh, my God, she was the pathologist that was in the paper? My mum was very proud of me and, and tells lots of people that I'm a, I'm a doctor and, and a forensic pathologist and that, yes, I had uh, done training in surgery before deciding that forensic pathology was the thing I really enjoyed. Uh, so, yes, there's, there's definitely much maternal pride around that, normally to my mortification because I'm just me. Do you find that surgery is notoriously competitive and there's a lot of 
testosterone and alpha females and males in there, basically. Do you find pathology as competitive? Look, I have to admit, I always enjoyed surgery. I, I think I was very lucky that I had excellent bosses. They were very supportive and they were very much of the competitive attitude of if you just worked hard and knew what you were doing, they respected you. And that's part of the work ethic I respect in people. And pathology can be a little bit the same. Um, there's certainly not the same. Surgeons and pathologists are very, very different people. And certainly in hospital pathology, so I did anatomical pathology before forensic pathology, anatomical pathologists are a lot more probably beta males than alpha males. They're, they're very nice, very smart people. Forensic pathologists are a very diverse mix of people and are probably considered a little bit odd even by by normal doctor standards. Eccentric, quirky, rather than odd? Eccentric, yeah, yeah. We embrace our oddness. We're okay with that. But again, uh, I think people just respond to whatever your work ethic is and whether they're the kindest, sweetest person or testosterone alpha male. I think if you just deal with them up front, you're honest and work hard, you can win most people over. So, Joe, you mentioned having to go home and obviously your mind's racing and you're second-guessing yourself. How do you actually unwind? Do you have a process? Do you have some sort of hobby or something that you do, knowing full well that you then have to go back the next morning and continue? Yeah. So firstly, as I'm driving home, I generally listen to to loud music that I can sing along to. Um, and even in my office afterwards, I'll, I'll put music on. Sometimes even in the mortuary, when we're cleaning up, when all's said and done, the police have gone, I'm writing my notes. We had a case in Auckland where myself and the technicians just sat. We listened to some music and it was sort of our little respectful moment at the end um, of just coming together and, and dealing with what we'd just been through. But listening to music definitely is a, is a good, good way just to fill my head with something other than thoughts about what I've just been doing and if it enables me to sing or dance along in the car on the way back in a suitably safe driving manner, of course, uh, then uh, then that's the go. Family certainly helps in terms of, of talking not about details, but just generalities about the case and talking about it in a slightly more sanitised way, I think certainly helps. And then before I drift off to bed, I always read um, as I'm, before I'm going to sleep and I will just do the same, same habits. Firstly, try not to worry if I'm going to get a good night's sleep or not. If I do, great. If I don't, look, we can all cope without one night of, of good sleep. Um, so not stressing about sleep, just reading, maybe having a cheeky gin and tonic. Alcohol's not the answer, but it's just that, that process of pouring a drink, sitting with a nice crystal glass, doing that and just just thinking it through and or just those little routines and habits, reading a book and then just hopefully drifting off to sleep and then tomorrow's the next day. And it's amazing how, how different and fresh you can feel in the morning, even after a rough day or a rough night. So what sort of music? Are we talking 1950s musicals? Are we talking heavy metal, rap? What are we talking? 
potentially all of the above. I know everybody says they've got a really diverse music collection, but over the last week I've listened to everything from Pearl Jam, classical guitar, opera, French hip-hop, Michael Bublé, Billy Joel, and as I drove in here today I was listening to the Italian rock band Maniskin. So a little bit of everything, depending on the mood, depending on the day. So on that musical note, thank you so much for joining us today and more so thank you for sharing such a personal experience of a very demanding job, but again, highlighting the humanity behind what you do. And I find I'm very grateful the way you do your job and under the circumstances under which you do it. So thank you for joining us today, Dr. Joanna Glengarry. Thank you for having me. Crime Insiders Forensics is a listener original production. It's hosted by me, Catherine Fox, and is produced by Ed Gooden. Sound design and imaging is by Link Kelly.